It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hi, everyone. This is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. And today I will be talking about two of the most legendary of Hollywood actresses, Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine, who were, of course, stars of Hollywood's golden era of the 1930s and the 1940s. But they are also famous as two feuding sisters who were locked into a kind of ancient sibling rivalry that goes all the way back to their childhoods. And that's something I'll be focusing upon. It's really quite fascinating, the relationship between the two. Olivia Mary de Havilland was the older of the two sisters by 15 months only, born in Tokyo, of all places, on July 1st, 1916, to aristocratic English parents, as the name might suggest, or aristocratic French parents, I suppose there is uh, a certain lineage there as well, uh, to French ancestors, I mean. Now, Olivia spent the last several decades of her life in Paris, uh, where she passed away only last July at the grand old age of 104. So what a magnificent and quite long life she had indeed. Um, Really, in in many ways, one of the very um, last actors of, uh, along with her sister and a few other notable figures from Hollywood's past, who had, until recently, um, been among the last surviving um, connections to that golden era of the 1930s and 40s. Her baby sister, Joan de Beauvoir de Havilland, among them. Uh, she was born on October 22, 1917, but is better known under her stage name, uh, of Joan Fontaine, her professional name, a name I think that all of the movie-loving world um, knows her by. And she lived a very long life herself, dying at the age of 96 in the year of 2013. So um, their lives are parallel in, run parallel in any number of ways, including, uh, including biological longevity. Both sisters were certainly born um, with a sense of aristocratic English entitlement, (laughs) Um, something that we would instantly recognize from so many um, PBS uh, shows uh, featuring um, the English aristocracy of, uh, of the period. And certainly many commentators um, see this kind of entitlement as a leading characteristic in their haughty off-screen demeanors. I mean, so English were they, in fact, that neither would become American citizens until their respective Hollywood careers were well underway in the 1940s. Their English father, Walter Augustus de Havilland, was a Cambridge-educated patent attorney who became professor at law at Waseda University in Japan. Their English mother, Lillian, Lillian, excuse me, Augusta de Havilland, was educated at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. 
and became a stage actress who left her career behind after going to Tokyo with her husband. Though she would return to work on the stage under the name of Lillian Fontaine after her daughters had achieved fame in the 1940s. Oh, by the way, the name de Havilland, that, of course, carries with it other associations. Um, and what are those? Well, I mean, the sister's paternal cousin, Sir Geoffrey de Havilland, was an early aviation pioneer. And not the last to enter their lives, I might add. But more about Howard Hughes later on. Yes, the name de Havilland, um, well, of course, that's also the name of the aircraft company that uh, continues, you know, to bear the name of their cousin, um, Sir Geoffrey de Havilland. So this really was quite a prestigious and aristocratic family. The parents uh, of Olivia and Joan, they had married in 1914, just two years before um, moving to Japan. But the marriage was not a happy one by all accounts, mostly due to Father Walter's infidelities. Um, in February 1919, Lillian persuaded her husband to take the family back to England to a climate she thought was better suited for their ailing daughters. And on that return, on that return to England, of course, they're, you know, traveling across the Pacific. They, the family stopped in California to treat Olivia's bronchial condition and high temperature. But then, after Joan developed pneumonia, both children were frequently sick, Lillian decided to remain with her daughters in California, where they settled in the town of Saratoga, about 50 miles south of San Francisco. But not long after this, their father, Walter, more or less abandoned the family and returned to Japan to live with his Japanese housekeeper, who would eventually become his second wife. Though the divorce of the two parents was not finalized until February of 1925. And after that divorce was finalized, Lillian remarried, this time to a department store owner named George M. Fontaine, whose strict parenting soon generated quite a bit of animosity um, in his new stepdaughters. Olivia and Joan then suffered years of oppression under the harsh reign of this man they called the Iron Duke. But they weren't any fonder of one another, really. And it seems that the Fontaine household was mostly a loveless one. Moreover, Joan was a sickly child, even more so than Olivia, who resented Lillian's overt favoritism toward the healthier, supposedly prettier Olivia. And she soon developed anemia following a combined attack of the measles and a streptococcal infection, which made her moody and sullen. And by all accounts, including her own, Joan always felt that she was in her sister's shadow, always coming up short, you know, in a battle waged by both sisters for the love of their mother, Lillian. Such are the accounts um, by Joan and Olivia, as well as by their biographers. In fact, according to biographer Charles Hyam, the sisters had always had an uneasy relationship. Starting in early childhood, when Olivia would rip up the clothes Joan had to wear as hand-me-downs, forcing Joan to sew them back together. And Olivia, much later on as the editor of a school magazine, set a competition for the best last will 
and testament, can you believe it, of her fellow pupils. She won her own competition with the words, and I bequeath to my sister the ability to win boys' hearts, which she does not have at present. Quote, unquote. Wow. What a... So bad was their relationship that Joan, for her part, was to record... I regret that I remember not one act of kindness from her all through my childhood. And she later recalled how in July of 1933, when she was 15 years old, Olivia threw me down on the poolside flagstone border, jumped on top of me, and fractured my collarbone. My sister was born a lion, and I a tiger. And as in the laws of the jungle, we were never friends. This is something Fontaine would write much later in her autobiography. But at this point, um, let me, allow me, if you will, a generalization (laughs) that, you know, siblings can share love of a kind, although not much love was apparent in the relationship between Olivia and, and Joan, but in general, that is at least theoretically possible and in practice is frequently the case. But nevertheless, siblings can drift apart. However, whatever their relationship, siblings are rarely indifferent to each other, certainly if there are only two in the family as well. This is my generalization. And forgive me for however unfair it might be. Now, if you will, would allow me to continue. Siblings, I mean, if they don't get along, the ability to get on each other's nerves is an ever-present. And they certainly know how to press each other's mutual rage button. Almost as if it were encoded in their genes. And that was certainly the case with Olivia and Joan. Now, Although Mother Lillian had left the acting profession, at least for a time, she had taught her daughters from the early stage to appreciate the arts, to read Shakespeare. And while other children were getting, you know, more prosaic bedtime stories, Mother Lillian would be reading the tragedies of Shakespeare to them from the earliest stage. So they were quite familiar with the Bard early on, and it would be something that would help them in their early careers. Um, Not only the arts, Shakespeare, she taught them music and elocution. So both Olivia and Joan, they were already well-poised, well-read, and very well-spoken young ladies before they reached Hollywood. I mean, they had no need of the formal lessons that the big Hollywood studios would often require of, you know, the, their young ingenues, their young actresses. They had no need of that in the case of Olivia and Joan. So well composed were they already. By the age of 16, Olivia had found a kind of escape from the Fontaine household and its... Uh, loveless troubles. Uh, she found this escape in high school and community theater, where she set her sights on a lead in the high school play during her senior year. Uh, 
But for whatever reason, her Martinet stepfather issued an ultimatum to her. He said that to participate in the play, this play, would mean that she would never be welcome in his house again. Can you imagine such a thing? So uh, Olivia, in effect, said no, left home, and never looked back. And this is really the first instance in her life and future career in which we can see her really standing up for herself. And this would be particularly important in her relationship uh, with another father figure, Jack Warner, the head of production at Warner's at Warner Brothers uh, Studio in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Also at the age of 16, Joan would return to live in Japan with her biological father, Walter. And as the reason for that, she would much later make accusations of sexual advances by her stepfather as the principal reason for leaving when she did. But in Tokyo, she attended the American school in Japan, graduating in 1935. Um, By her own admission, Joan was a painfully shy young woman and something of a loner, a trait she would share with her sister, Olivia. She was also something of a perfectionist, much like her sister, and most certainly highly intelligent, which is... Another trait, I think it would be fair to say, that Olivia possessed. Meanwhile, um, while Joan was in Japan, Olivia made her amateur theater debut in the stage play Alice in Wonderland in 1933 in a production of the Saratoga Community Players. And she said about that, for the first time, I had the magic experience of feeling possessed by the character that I was playing. I really felt I was Alice, and that when I moved across the stage, I was actually moving in Alice's enchanted wonderland. And so for the first time, I felt not only pleasure in acting, but love for acting as well. After graduating from high school in 1934, Olivia was offered the role of Puck in the Saratoga Community Theatre production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. That summer, Austrian director Max Reinhardt came to California for his major new production of the same play at the Hollywood Bowl. And after one of Reinhardt's assistants saw Olivia perform in that Saratoga production, he offered her the understudy position for the role of Hermia, which she accepted. In fact, the woman she was understudying, Gloria Stewart, the same Gloria Stewart who would win several decades afterwards an Academy Award nomination for portraying the elderly Rose in the movie Titanic, that Gloria Stewart uh, would soon leave the production and to take a part in a film. And so Olivia, Olivia de Havilland, took her place um, in that Max Reinhardt production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and that's really where she um, began to make her name, especially as she received positive reviews and would go on to play Hermia throughout the entire engagement, as well as the four-week tour that followed it. And during that tour, Max Reinhardt received word that he would direct the Warner Brothers film version of his stage production, and 
he then offered de Havilland the film role of Hermia. Now, having wanted to become an English teacher, Olivia was going to matriculate at Mills College in California with a scholarship in the fall, but Reinhardt persuaded her to accept the role. And so soon after, the now 18-year-old actress signed a seven-year-old, seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. And seven-year contracts were the standard length of contracts at the Hollywood studios, even among the biggest stars. They were quite restrictive, and it was very hard for the stars to get out of them. But let me not get ahead of myself here. With Olivia's Hollywood career now taking off, biographers suggest that Joan began to develop a so-called Cinderella complex, in which she saw herself as little more than a put-upon servant to the undeserving Olivia. And to extend the analogy just a little bit, when Joan soon developed her passion for acting, it wasn't much welcomed by Mother Lillian. One actress in the family was enough, she thought. <laughs> Not thinking of her own future second part career, I guess. Even decrying that Warner Brothers was Olivia's studio, so Joan would have to find her acting home elsewhere, which she would do at RKO, as well as her independent producer, David Selznick. Joan couldn't even trade on the de Havilland name and had to invent one of her own, taking at first the name of Joan Burfield and only later Joan Fontaine in assuming the surname of her hated stepfather, George Fontaine. Meanwhile, in 1935, Warner Brothers made a decision that would have a profound impact on Olivia's blossoming career, pairing her with the then little-known Australian actor named Errol Flynn, in the swashbuckling pirate movie, Captain Blood. Olivia had just turned 19 that summer when she stepped onto a soundstage for a screen test with the beautiful 26-year-old Flynn. The attraction between them was, was instant, mutual, and the resulting chemistry changed the course of their lives. And Olivia and he became big stars, virtually overnight, really. The popular success of Captain Blood, as well as the critical response to the on-screen couple, would lead to seven subsequent collaborations between them, beginning with The Charge of the Light Brigade in 1936, The Adventures of Robin Hood, most famously, in 1938, Four is a Crowd, that same year, Dodge City, the following year, in 1939. The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, in 1939. Santa Fe Trail, in 1940. And their final collaboration, They Died With Their Boots On, in 1941. Conflicts would mark the association of Errol and Olivia, both on screen and off. He was, of course, famously a married playboy of a sort, while she was, not unlike her sister, as I said, a bit of a loner, and one determined to build her career. She was very career-oriented. Jack Warner, the head of production at Warner Brothers, had been placing them together in production after production until Olivia began to grow weary of such typecasting. And Errol, for his part, was growing jealous of her talent and aspirations to be something much more than just Errol Flynn's on-screen girlfriend. Nevertheless, the feelings between them were genuinely intense throughout their association. I mean, in 1937 even, he proposed marriage, but 
Olivia demanded that he first divorce his wife before any such overtures could be entertained. And she would later say, you know, we were very attracted to each other. In his autobiography, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, he wrote about me falling in love with me. And yes, we did fall in love. And I believe that this is evident in the screen chemistry between us. But his circumstances at the time just prevented the relationship from going further. I have not talked about it in great detail, but the relationship was not consummated. The chemistry was there, though. It was definitely there. Now, not everyone has always believed that in its entirety. Although Olivia would frequently reiterate in the decades ahead that she had been infatuated with him, she would always insist that nothing sexual had ever happened between them. That is, at least until 2009, when at the age of 92, she finally admitted that she and Errol Flynn had had an affair. Now, probably it could not have been otherwise, but Joan was unsurprisingly caustic about her sister's devotion to Flynn. And in the words of their mutual biographer, Charles Hyam, Joan felt that she had seen through Errol Flynn and realized that he was worthless <laughs> as a character. She had no respect for Olivia in the matter, writes Hyam, and made her feelings known. In the meantime, while Olivia is having all of this tremendous professional success, Joan had been taking more modest steps with her own career. First, debuting on stage in the West Coast production of Call It A Day in 1935 before soon signing an RKO contract. Her film debut was a small role in the now mostly forgotten movie No More Ladies, also made in 1935, in which she was credited as Joan Burfield. Now, despite this relatively inauspicious beginning, RKO did consider her a rising star and touted The Man Who Found Himself, a B-movie really made in 1937 as her first starring role, while billing her as the new RKO screen personality in the end credits. Joan continued with a number of B-movies for RKO before being cast opposite Fred Astaire in Damsel in Distress. Really her first truly notable film, but the movie was something of a fiasco, and Joan's lack of singing and dancing skills was duly noted by both studio executives and highly skeptical movie critics. Nevertheless, she plowed on, continuing to appear in small parts in about a dozen movies, including The Women for George Cukor in 1939, but failed to make a strong impression. And so her contract was not renewed by RKO when it expired that same year. Meanwhile, in 1938, Olivia de Havilland had, along with Errol Flynn, reached a whole new level of popularity and success with the Warner Brothers classic The Adventures of Robin Hood, a truly great movie, one of the great Hollywood films of the 1930s. And such popularity and success must have come as something of a blow to Olivia's somewhat floundering sister Joan. Throughout the late 30s, Olivia would appear in a variety of light romantic comedy films, including 
perversely enough, at least from Joan's perspective, one imagines, the film version of the play that Joan had performed in, Call It A Day. Olivia was also making such movies as For as a Crowd in 1938 and Hard to Get that same year, 1938, though she is perhaps better remembered for making several historical epics, period pieces, such as Anthony Adverse in 1936 and The Great Garrick in 1937. I mean, she was perfect for such work. I mean, her refined demeanor and beautiful diction made her particularly effective in these later films. But while such performances were generally well-received by critics and the public alike, and indeed she was, by the end of the 1930s, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, they did not advance her career toward the more serious roles that she desired. She may have been very career-oriented, but Olivia was also fixated upon making more artistically ambitious films. For her part, at least, Joan was the first of the sisters to get married in 1939 to the handsome and popular British movie star Brian A. Hearn. Once again, though, the occasion precipitated a new development in the sisterly rivalry. The night before the wedding, Olivia's then boyfriend, if only for a short time, the billionaire Howard Hughes, had danced with the bride-to-be Joan and tried to apparently talk her out of the marriage, saying that he wanted to marry her himself. Now, Joan, supposedly shocked by this duplicity, told Olivia, was quick to tell Olivia, with the inevitable consequences in the relationship between the two sisters. Now, as I had said earlier, Olivia signed a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers and regretted it at once when she found herself cast in what she considered to be trivial pictures that, you know, lacked the gravitas of, say, Shakespeare. And not that she would have had much choice. A seven-year contract was the standard contract at that time. But she was very ambitious, not just for her career, but she wanted to do, make better films and to do more fulfilling roles, not just to be the kind of, you know, charming eye candy in a big-budget Warner Brothers film. She wanted to express herself through more challenging parts. And so after four years and many leading roles, including those wildly popular movies co-starring Errol Flynn, when she found herself offered the part of Melanie Hamilton in David Selznick's production of Gone with the Wind, um, she quickly grabbed it. I mean, no actress in Hollywood would not do so. I mean, it wasn't the most challenging of parts, but it certainly was a very and quite highly prestigious one, and certainly it would have led to any number of possibilities afterwards. However, her boss at Warner Brothers, Jack Warner, did not want her to take it. Studios were really quite exclusive in those days and very turf conscious and did not lend their stars to each other, at least not without a great deal expected in return. Now, somehow, Olivia 
was able to work around this. She was able to get around Jack Warner's objection to her taking the part of Melanie Hamilton in Gone with the Wind. And it's something that Warner never forgave her for. At Warner's, Olivia had always excelled at playing heroines whose demure bearing belied a feisty core. And so with the role of the goody-goody Melanie, you know, the, the tender-hearted foil to Vivian Lee's scheming Scarlett O'Hara, she made a truly multi-dimensional character out of what is really a rather cardboard figure. In fact, so good was Olivia in the part that she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but of course lost to fellow Gone with the Wind actress Hattie McDaniel, who famously became the first African-American to win an Academy Award. But back at Warner Brothers, and as a consequence of her supposed treachery, she was demoted by Jack Warner to a supporting role in the private lives of Elizabeth in Essex, a result of Warner's campaign to place her in a kind of internal exile within the walls of the studio, and where she would have to conclude her long series of popular, if undemanding, films with Errol Flynn in Santa Fe Trail, and They Died With Their Boots On, made in 1940 and 1941, which, you know, certainly, if nothing else, saw no diminishing of their on-screen chemistry together. But following the critical acclaim that she had received for her performance in Gone with the Wind, Olivia now sought more serious and challenging roles, but was certainly not supported in these efforts by Warner Brothers. And so throughout the early 1940s, she became increasingly frustrated by the roles assigned to her, which she felt were unchallenging and insubstantial. And feeling she had proven herself capable of playing more than the demure ingenues and damsels in distress that were typecasting her, she began to reject scripts that offered her this type of role and actively sought out better ones. Meanwhile, like most actresses in Hollywood, Joan had herself desperately wanted the role of Scarlett O'Hara, but when she inquired about that possibility with director George Cukor, he said, he told her that she'd be much better suited to playing Melanie. And as legend goes, Joan threw a fit when hearing that and screamed, if it's Melanie you want, call Olivia. And for this reason, Joan would in fact always take credit for her sister winning the role of Melanie in Gone with the Wind, which is a claim, of course, that Olivia would come to resent in the years ahead. Also, as legend has it, despairing of ever getting such a prestigious part herself, Joan curled up in bed one night to read a new bestseller called Rebecca and instantly saw herself in the role of the put-upon heroine, struggling against a powerful, if dead, rival. Whether by happenstance or design, the next night she found herself at a dinner party seated next to Gone with the Wind producer David Selznick, who owned the on-screen rights to Rebecca. Would you like to test for it? He asked. And of course, she did. Joan's time had finally arrived. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Let's call a wrap on part one of Feuding Sisters, this story of the relationship between Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine.
I hope you've enjoyed this discussion about these two great actresses and that you will join me next time for part two. You've been listening to Coast St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Code St. Luke, visit CodeStLuke.org. Have a great day.